Welcome to Inspiring Science Teachers. My name is Chris Stoker, and the goal of this podcast is to tap into the minds of great science teachers and share those ideas with all of you. So thanks for listening. For this episode, we get to hear from Betty Prawl, a fourth grade teacher and the elementary science coordinator for her district. Betty shares a great activity that involves M&Ms and candy corn, a strategy called Thinking Maps, and she discusses the importance of teaching vocabulary. I also loved her story of a teacher that made a big difference for her and made her think about a career in teaching. I think you'll love it too. So once again, welcome and thanks for joining us. Betty, thanks for uh, sitting down with me and uh, chatting a little bit about all this stuff we're going to chat about. Um, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, tell us where you teach and how long you've been teaching and all that good stuff. Yeah, um, so my name is Betty Prawl and I teach fourth grade at Sacagawea Elementary in Caldwell. Um, it's part of the Caldwell School District. I have been teaching for seven years. I originally taught second grade and then moved to fourth grade. Um, I teach all subjects because I teach elementary education, so very general studies. I should just say, like, I subbed in first grade last year, and it was a near disaster. (laughs) Um, You know, for example, we had to clean the room full on, stop everything you're doing, and clean three times during the day, and still at the end of the day, neighboring teachers had to come help me get the kids to clean it right at the end. So, oh my gosh! Props to you guys at elementary. I, I do have to say, how long did you teach second grade for? I taught second grade. This is my third year in fourth grade, so okay. four years. Yes. Did you find the switch hard? I found the switch exciting. So I taught two years at a different school. I actually taught two years at Blackfoot Community Charter Learning Center, which is a STEM school in Blackfoot, Idaho. And then I moved back to the Valley and got a job out at Caldwell. And so then I taught two years of second grade in Caldwell. And we got to the point where we had four second grade teachers and not enough students to sustain four second grade teachers. But there was an opening in fourth and an opening Mm -hmm. in kindergarten. And I went to my principal and was like, I'm willing to be the person that moves if you move me to fourth. (laughs) And my reasoning was, ultimately, I want to become an administrator someday. And I had no experience with the ISATs. Mm. And so I knew that if I moved to fourth, I would gain some experience with ISATs. And so I was thinking about my own future a little selfishly and was like, hey, send me to fourth grade. I really had thought at that point that second grade was the ideal grade, the Mm. perfect grade. I wouldn't have found any other better grade. I love fourth grade so much more than second grade. It's Mm. funny how it changed. What is it about fourth grade you love so much? Their independence and the ability to have conversations with them. So, for example, we've been talking about Lewis and Clark. And the question that I posed to my kids recently after we, we read a novel about Lewis and Clark and then in our journeys book, there's a story about Sacagawea. And so we did some research and we talked about it. And then I posed to my kids, well, were they heroes or were they villains? And the complex conversation, like they could look at characters and say, well, you know, this part of their journey was heroic or this thing that they did. And some kids like defended, well, they brought a slave with them, but that was normal at that time. And so that's okay. That doesn't make them a villain. Um, And so it was really interesting to hear the, like, they're able to look at characters in different ways and have those like more 
complex thoughts that's about. It's pretty adult thinking that. Yeah, about characters. Yeah. yeah. yeah and cool. so that really, yeah, I really, that's what I love about fourth grade is that I can have some of those complex conversations yeah. with kids and let them defend their opinion, and they can. And they can figure it out and defend it. Yeah. Did you always want to go into teaching? Um, no. Until I was in fifth grade, I was going to be a princess. I was 100% adamant that I was going to marry royalty because I knew that I could just become a princess. And so I was going to marry royalty and become a princess. In fifth grade, I didn't really like school a whole lot. Um, I had a fourth grade teacher who was pretty strict and kind of scary, in my opinion. And at that point, I just really didn't like school. I was very talkative. I got in trouble a lot. Um... And my fifth grade teacher totally turned that around. In fifth grade, I was in a split, a fifth, sixth grade mm-hmm. split. And she really turned school around for me. And so I really started to enjoy it. And at that point, I was like, maybe I want to do this. Maybe I want to be a teacher. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So about fifth grade. So uh, this is a loaded question. But what was the secret? of wh- how, how? What turned it around for you? What did that teacher do that... I felt like I had a real personal relationship with her. Mm-hmm. I had a nickname from her. I felt like she really cared about me. Uh, her, She built her entire class up like with all these positives and just worked hard on our self-esteem and made us confident. And so that, I think, really turned things around for me. Um, so I, I didn't feel like I was in trouble all the time. And yeah. I was like, oh. Oh, I actually kind of like school. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I really think it all goes back to relationship. Like, we, I mean, we yeah. hear that in our profession a lot, right. but I was like the recipient of that. So I'm sure that's like something you focus on. Oh, yes. In your classroom. <laughs> Definitely. 100%. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, tell us a little bit about one of maybe your favorite lessons and kind of walk us through, you know, the mechanics of it and tell us, you know, why you think it works well and why you like it and all that. So I really was thinking two different things. And I I haven't picked one, so I'm going to talk about both. Okay. So the first one is a unit on animal adaptations or animal characteristics. It's one of my absolute favorite things to teach. And there's a few parts of the unit that work super well. One of them is a hands-on component for understanding camouflage. And this works for younger grades as well as older grades. So these standards cross elementary school. They're all over the place in life science. Like if you look at second grade, it's like, oh, this standard kind of matches the same standard in fourth grade. Um, And so they cross all over the place. Um, So it works well with younger kids too. But I buy a bunch of candy corn and then a few bags of M&M's. And I put them in a flat tray or a flat container and um, put the M&Ms and the candy corn in there together and mix it up. So then we have a conversation in class about how we're birds. And birds can only eat berries to survive. And if they eat rocks, then they're going to choke and they might die. And, oh, my gosh, things will be terrible and we don't want to die. Um, and so we talk about... Um, how we're birds and we have this, um, you know, thing with our beak. And so we make our hands into our beak and we practice like picking up things off our desk from, with our beaks. And then I walk past pretty slowly shaking my container and they have to grab the berries. And so the M&Ms are the representation of the berries and the candy corn are the representation of the rocks. And so they go through and they collect as many berries as they can while I walk past. 
Um, and then we graph the berries that we collected. So we throw in some math and we graph the berries that we collected. And we tend to find that we collect a lot more blue and red and green and a lot less yellow and orange. And so we have to have discussions and figure out why do you think that is? How did that happen? Well, there's just as, you know, kids will tell you, well, there's not as many yellow in there. And so then you let somebody come up and start pulling out, you know, once they have a minute to look at it, all the yellows they can find or all the oranges they can find and they can find them in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have those conversations about why why does that work? And then applying it to animals. Well, what do you think that, you know, matters in an animal's life? How does that work? So when you say you walk by, are they? Are you just walking down the aisles of your yeah, desks? Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, my desks are in groups. Yeah, and they're reaching into a bin. And so I mean, I make a few grand rules like your bottom has to stay on your chair, and you know that kind of stuff, so they can't chase me around the room grabbing. Um, but yeah, so then they grab as many. M&M's as they can yeah. as I walk past. And if it's a group that didn't get a whole lot, I'll walk through one more time or whatever, you know. And they grab as many, but they don't have a long time to look at it. And so they're quickly trying to grab. Um, and so then we talk about that adaptation of camouflage and why animals might have that and how that would help them. And then especially in fourth grade, we talk about how camouflage helps predators and not only the prey. Um, and so how does camouflage help a predator? Right. Uh, and so we have those kind of conversations. And then the end of the unit, I really like a lot for fourth grade. Um, we have them create a creature. And so they have to give their creature characteristics that match a biome. So they can use a creature that they already know, like a tiger or something else, but it has to live in a biome that it's unnatural to. Mm. And so then what? how would you change this animal to live in this biome? Like what characteristics would it need? And so then they have to write an essay explaining about what they've done with their animal to make it survive in a different biome. Um, and explain the adaptations and the characteristics their animal has. And I really like the conclusion of that unit, too, mm-hmm. because it really reinforces whether or not they understood uh, how animal adaptations work, how characteristics help animals survive, and those right. concepts. Do what, so what did they come up with? What kind of stuff? For oh, my gosh. We've had all sorts of things. So my classroom is flamingo-themed, so inevitably every year I get at least one or two okay, kids yeah. that put a flamingo somewhere that it's not natural to. Um, so, like, we've had flamingos in the Arctic and <laughs> You know, different things like that. And so then they'll come up with, well, we're going to take this animal that we already know. And then to live in the Arctic, well, it would need fur. Not only would it need its feathers, but we're going to cover this Mm -hmm. flamingo's legs and feet with fur. And we're going to make its feet bigger and wider so it can walk on the top of the snow. Um, And so those different characteristics that they would add. Uh, a food source, mm-hmm. they would have to figure out, well, how's your, what's your flamingo going to eat in that? Does it need a characteristic to find food? How would it find food? Um, so that kind of thing. So, yeah. Do it's you find fun. that students have trouble, some students, like with getting to that level? Or are they, you've talked about that kind of stuff enough that it's an easy transfer for them? I think by the time we get to the end of the unit, I, most of my kids can reasonably come up with something. They might need some of those probing questions of like, well, what's its food source? What's it going to eat? Yeah. Uh, man, okay, I could see a flamingo in the Arctic. I could see a flamingo with fur, but what's it going to eat? Um, and so those kind of kinds of questions to get them to think a little deeper. But, yeah, most kids can write a multi-paragraph essay about their new animal that they've been created. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. 
Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's it's really fun. So those are your two. Um, no, that's that's, that's all part one. of one. <laughs> Give two then. Uh, and then the other thing that I really love teaching, and we do it right at the beginning of the year every year, is we do um, our um, Earth Science Unit for fourth grade. And we borrow a few of the mystery science lessons actually from second grade because they're very connected Mm. um, with our standards. So, like, second grade has a standard about Earth's processes changing things quickly and slowly. And fourth grade has standards about how natural disasters and things change the Earth. And so we borrow a few of the lessons from second grade. But there's a few really good ones, even on mystery science. Um, so one of them that we like from second grade is they have to build a cornmeal canyon. Mm, and so yeah. they take cornmeal and salt and water, and it's all mixed together, and it makes it like wet sand, basically. And they build a cornmeal canyon, and then they drip water on it, and then they pour water on it, and they talk about the difference and how it changes. And I really enjoy that lesson as a refresher from what they learned in second grade to build on what we're going to do in fourth grade. And it's just a really fun, hands-on activity for kids that I think cements their understanding. Yeah. Well, I bought like a pallet of cornmeal bags yes. for our teachers like last uh, last year. So yeah, yeah. Well, Imagine how much more cornmeal you would eat if fourth grade also taught that. <laughs> I, know, I like these ideas you're putting out there. Yeah, Betty. So uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. But no, it All really right. is a great introduction to the unit. It builds on what they already know about landforms changing, and then just cements in like as we get into our natural disasters and there's so many tie-ins and journeys we actually reworked our journeys units which i think west data uses journeys too Mm -hmm. um we we reworked our journeys units in fourth grade so we put all the natural disaster stories together because there's a story about twisters there's a story about hurricanes Mm -hmm. there's a story about tornadoes um so we put them all together so then we could teach it at the same time we're teaching the science unit and it works really well integrated yeah Yeah, complementary unit yeah Middle school deals with the changes as well, but they also add in, are the changes fast or slow? Mm-hmm. And then you get into some deeper content. That's about as far as my knowledge of that goes. Yeah. Earth science, but it is, it just kind of brings up your point. Uh, They're very connected. Extremely connected. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I really have encouraged teachers to do this year and have done myself is that new progression document is so helpful. Yeah. So when I go into a unit, I look at the earth science standards and it's broken up. So like K2 kids should learn da 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 and da da da. And then it's like, Oh, in third grade, they talked about the moon and the stars and they're going to talk about that again in fifth grade. But I can see like, okay, so in third grade, in uh, K1, 2, they talked about this. And then in three, four, five, they talk about this. And then what are they going to need for middle school? Um, that progression document is super helpful. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Spend some time exploring. Even if you do PD or something with it, spend some time exploring it because it's really helpful. Kind of a related question, I guess, to your lesson would be what you have a kind of a go-to strategy that you use a lot or something like that you could share with us? Yeah. Um, So... A few things that I found work to tie in, especially when we're integrating reading and um, science or reading and social studies or math and science, when we're integrating subjects, one thing that really is helpful is thinking maps. And so I don't know that West Data has done a lot of instruction on thinking maps and the Caldwell District is just kind of moving towards it. But I was trained last year. Yeah, I guess it was just at the beginning of last year. So I have two year in year two of thinking maps. And 
I really think it's helpful. It's helpful for collecting information for kids. It's help, helpful for my lowest kids then being able to have those conversations with their classmates, right. to be able to talk about science, to use the vocabulary that's associated with science, because it's right up there on our wall. And they've helped to create this map, and so they take ownership of it. Well, they use this and this and this. Yeah. And they, yeah, I have kids that get out of their seats and like go point to things when they're trying to talk to their neighbor, like, no, this. <laughs> It's good engagement, right? Uh, yeah. And so I think that thinking maps are a huge thing. Um, GLAD is also really important for integrating things. Um, so like you were saying the phrase about they change quickly and slowly. Mm -hmm. I reminds when I taught second grade, I had a GLAD book about landforms. And one of the sentences that repeated over and over in the book was, sometimes landforms change. They can change quickly. They can change slowly. Oh, yeah. um, and it just repeated over and over again. Um, but GLAD is really a great way to help integrate across subjects as well as provide that visual hands-on learning for kids. Is that an acronym, GLAD? I actually don't know. <laughs> so it is something... Like I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, okay. So all of Caldwell School District is trained in GLAD strategies. Okay. And it's out of California um, where the original training was. And basically, it is a way to engage kids in entire units. And so it involves things like integrating math and reading into our science and social studies, and, or vice versa, integrating science and social studies into our math and reading, either way. Uh, and so it helps, I mean, there's strategies in there like sentence patterning charts that help with classroom conversations and help with getting kids writing. Even my lowest writers can write off of a sentence patterning chart and figure out, you know, writing, you know, descriptions about landforms or about animal adaptations. And so to your point of my, your question earlier, well, can all of your kids do that at the end of the unit? Part of it is they have resources around the room that can really help them. Right. And so they have a list of adjectives that are associated with animal adaptations already. And they have a list of verbs that are associated with animal adaptations already. And so they have those things there for them so they can use that as they write their final assessment. Okay. Of, yeah. That sounds good. Um, Tell me a little bit more about thinking maps. Like what, like what is, what is that? Like, yeah. Explain it to if someone doesn't know. So the most broad thinking map is called a circle map, and right. it literally is just like a brainstorm of ideas. And so I do this at the beginning of almost every unit. So I just did it with fractions um, for math. And so I literally write the word fraction in the middle of the circle map, and they tell me everything they know about fractions, and I write it up there, and I honor their thinking. So even mm -hmm. if it's something that's totally off the wall and incorrect, mm -hmm. I honor it. Because we have an opportunity to go back as we work through the unit, like, do we still agree with all of this stuff? Should we change anything? Should we take anything off? And so like, we'll end up at the end of some units with like big X's over things like, oh, we learned that that wasn't actually true. Um, and so that kind of conversation with kids, but, and so it's just a like brain dump for them to tell me everything they know about a subject and then to go back and review it each time we have a new lesson or learn something new or do a different part of the unit. Like we go back and pull it back out and it's like, oh, do we still agree? Anything we learned that we want to add? And so every time you go back, you add, use a different color. And so my kids okay. can see all of our lessons. So like we might start with purple and everything at the beginning that we thought was like that we already knew is it going to be in purple. And then as we learn stuff, we'll add red and like, oh, on the red day, we decided to cross out this thing that was purple. Um, and so on the blue day, we decided to add this and cross out this thing. Um, and so it really gives a great way for resources to be around your room for kids to, to see and to use and to think about. Um, and so I constantly have somebody asked me recently, I was talk 
I was promoting thinking maps in a different setting. And somebody asked me, well, how do you have all those papers around your room if you're doing that all the time? And I have, like, so I slide them down on the bottom of my whiteboard, and I just have, you know, mm-hmm. like, poster papers hanging from everything. Right. And Oliver, I have a second whiteboard that's literally just covered in them. Like, we've uh-huh. had it on our main whiteboard and moved right. it over here. I have a bulletin board where I stack certain ones. So, like, all my vocabulary ones for our reading unit are all stacked over there so kids can know if they are at the end of the unit but they need something from the first story. They'll literally go lift it up and find what they're looking for. Like, oh, it's under here. Right. Uh, and so as long as I keep consistent of like where I'm putting them, kids can find them back and use them. Um, it seems cool. Like it's a, a way for them to see their sense making as you kind of go throughout the learning cycle almost. Yes, definitely. Yeah, to kind of capture that. And it's super visual. Mm-hmm. And one reason that's really important is we have a lot of EL learners at our right. school. And they need that vocabulary on the wall. They need that sense-making right in front of their faces so they can use it when they're having a conversation. So they can use it when they're uh, writing an answer to an essay question. So they can use it when yeah. it's... Do you start with like uh, vocab that isn't necessarily the right vocab, just whatever they say goes up there? And then throughout a unit, you bring in more academic vocab? Or does mm-hmm. it just depend? Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of times, so like with fractions, they didn't know the numerator or denominator, even though they've had fractions in second and third grade, like those academic vocabulary words were not ones that came to their brain right away. Um, And so when they were telling me things about fractions, I mean, I got lots of words like half and part and whole and, you know, those kinds of things, but we missed, you know, numerator, denominator, um, those kinds of things. And so like literally after the first lesson, I had one kid say, well, we need to add numerator and denominator to that. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, yeah, they add in their own vocabulary that they've picked up. I'm really big on vocabulary. Like, I work really hard with my kids on academic vocabulary and using academic vocabulary and asking them, like, well, what other word could you use for fast? What other word could you use for? Yep, that animal is fast, but fast is a boring word. Like, what other word can we use? So trying to build that. So I really want to make sure they have resources that they can turn to to build it. And let me ask a follow-up. Why do you think vocab is so important? Um, Honestly, for the last few years, my iStation scores of kids coming into my class, vocabulary was the lowest area they entered my class with. And so I took their fall iStation scores and went, oh, we need to focus on this. (laughs) Uh, Another thing is that I think they don't have access to as many books as some other kids do. They don't have access to as you know those types of things. And so I think that it's really important to provide them with that domain specific and academic right. vocabulary. I think that the only like a lot of them, the only place they hear it is at school. Um, and it's not due to any fault of parents, of course. Like sure. it you know, I have parents that are not bilingual, that I have parents that only speak Spanish or parents that, you know, those kinds of things. And so they may have that academic vocabulary in a different language. Um, but our kids need it in English. So was that a tough transition coming from a STEM school? Yes. When you came over here to... Yes. In my interview, he was like, well, what, are, what would you do with a kindergarten student that doesn't speak any English? And I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean, what would I do with that? Uh, so yeah, I remember that question, like distinctively catching me a little off guard, like doesn't speak any English. Um, 
but now it's the norm. Like, I know lots of kindergarten students that started the school year and didn't speak any English. And so, but yeah, so that was a difficult transition. It was a different transition. Uh, we're, we do a lot with visible learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't have a lot of experience with visible learning prior to coming to the school that I, coming to Sacagawea. And so that was a big transition for me too. Um, but I did have that curiosity push. Like everything was supposed to spark students' curiosity at my previous school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it constantly was in the back of my brain. Well, how does this journey's lesson spark curiosity? Mm-hmm. How can I use this to spark curiosity? What can I do to make kids curious and want to know more? Um, and so I think that that gave me a leg up on some other teachers too was like, okay, well, I may not have some of these strategies. I do now. I've picked up a lot of them yeah. and went to a lot of trainings, but I did have that that drive for curiosity and getting kids engaged. So, nice. so you're the elementary science coordinator for your that district. Is, is that true. your title? Yes, that is title? the title. Okay. Tell us, I mean, you already kind of laid out some of the challenges that you face in your school district, but anything else you'd add to what the challenges are for teaching science in elementary at your school, at your district, and what you do to try to help with that? Yeah, I think some of the challenges for teaching elementary, regardless of what school district you have, uh, teaching elementary science, regardless of what school district you have, is time. Um, that is the number one thing that I hear teachers say to me, both in my district and out of my district, is, well, I need all of that time for reading. We've got to do all of that time for reading. Like, my kids just don't read as well as they should, and we've just got to spend that time for reading. Um, and so I hear that a lot. Like, time. Time is not carved into teachers' schedules or into their day to teach science, especially the younger they get, yeah. which is when they need it the most. Um, and so we have you kids enter kindergarten with such curiosity and uh, interest in how things work and what are what we're doing, and so yeah, they really need that. Um, and so time, time is the number one thing. And what I do to combat that? When I was in college, I took a methods course for social studies, and the title of the textbook caught my attention so much. It was every book's a social studies book was the title of my textbook. And I was like, what? Uh, and then throughout the semester, the professor went on to prove to me, basically, that no matter what you're already reading in your classroom or what you want to read that's about kindness or what you want to read that's about animals or whatever it is, like how you can tie that into social studies. And so then I kind of applied that same thing to science is like, well, if every book's a socialist book, then every book's a science book too. (laughs) And so what can we do to make sure that teachers aren't missing those opportunities to tie things in? It's like, okay, so we have this really awesome journey story and this is where we are in our progression. And so it's time for us to read this as part of the unit. How do we not miss that opportunity to tie in the really cool mystery science lesson that would go right along with it or the really cool science concept or the science vocabulary? Right. Uh, so journeys picks out 10 vocabulary words every week for teachers to focus on. At least they did at second and fourth grade level, and I'm pretty sure that it is the same kind of across the board. Where I wouldn't know for sure would be kindergarten. I don't know if they would have 10. Um, <laughs> But, it get, you know, 10 vocabulary words to focus on. 
sometimes the vocabulary words are really great content vocabulary. Like this week, one of the words in my lesson is legislature um, and informed. And so some of them are really great words that kids should understand. And some of them are not so great. Um, and so then it's like, okay, so I have these really great, some of these really great words and the story contains some other really great words. So how can I pull out the information that I can tie into a science lesson or tie into a social studies lesson or tie into one of my other subjects? Um, and so just helping teachers see some of those connections that they can make right. and, and making sure that those things are easily available to them. So like if they pull up the progression for journeys units, it should already be there that this mystery science goes with it. Like they should be able to see that tie in right. easily. Yeah. Um, and I haven't done as much work around that as I would like to, but it's on my, on my list. There is, there's some stuff there, but it's not as much as I would like. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And then, let's see, so time is one of the huge issues. Another one of the huge issues that I think that teachers face is fear, their own fear. Um, mostly because they don't, or they feel like they don't have science content knowledge. And so they're afraid to teach it because they're afraid they don't really know what they're talking about or that their kids are going to ask them a question that they don't know the answer to. Uh, and so that like fear piece was like, well, I was never really good at science or science isn't my thing. And so they have that fear component associated with teaching science. And I've heard this not just at the elementary level, but at other levels too, is like, there's a little bit of fear associated with a content knowledge that you're not familiar with or not as familiar with as you are. Like everybody learns how to read. Not everybody learns the rock types or, <laughs> uh, right. and so that like fear for them. And I think that making things easy, easy um, is one of the ways to help. And so something as simple as in my newsletter, having those quick links of like, okay, well, they don't have to think about it too much because all they have to do is click this link and here's a science lesson ready to go. Mm -hmm. um, having things like that, I think mystery science takes away fear for some teachers or some fear for some teachers because it's like, okay, well, the majority of the lesson is taught through videos and then a hands-on experiment that's directed by someone other than me. Um, and so that gives them a little bit of confidence back to is like, okay, well, we'll just keep going in the mystery and see if it answers that question that I don't know the answer to, or see if, you know, um, that happens. And I think just making sure that they have resources that they know, like, oh, I can reach out to Dr. Farrow at the middle school, or I can reach out to somebody, you know, around me that might have that content knowledge. Like, man, my kid asked me this really cool question and I tried Googling it and I still didn't come up with the answer. So I'm going to email Melissa Farrow or I'm going to email Chris Stoker or, you know, right. that ability. They have that understanding of like, I can send this email and find the answer. I was talking to a teacher this week that was saying some of her colleagues, one thing they didn't like about mystery science was that it felt like they weren't doing the teaching. You know, like Doug was doing the teaching or whatever. And, <laughs> but her point was that, <clears throat> but she gets to facilitate the conversations, which is really where, in her opinion, the real learning happens. 
Like, have you, have you experienced like similar things from heard similar things from teachers or? Yeah. So the way that mystery science goes through a lesson is like you have a short three minute video that's like an intro or a short three minute video that catches kids' attention, and then it asks a question and it says pause the video here or even in the newer videos it like brings it to its own slide like it automatically pauses and puts the question up on the screen, right. uh, and so then you can have those conversations with kids. I have had. Teachers that lean both ways. So I have recently talked to a teacher who was like, oh, yeah, I never let the mystery science thing facilitate the experiment part because Mm -hmm. it's too slow or it's too this or it's too that. It's too slow was her reason. Uh, But, you know, so I've I've seen teachers like that, like, oh, I always facilitate the hands-on activity part. So my kids are following my directions and they might engage differently with it. Uh, And then... I definitely know that the other side of the coin is true, too, is like the teachers who are afraid of teaching science, the fact that Doug teaches the science and then they have to have a little conversation and they can say, well, turn to your table and talk about that. I'm going to take four hands and see what people think at the end of this, turn to your table and talk about it. And then we'll go on and Doug will answer the question in the next part of the video. Um, And so I think that that takes away some of that fear, too. So you kind of like grab it and use it with whatever kind of your style is in your classroom, mm-hmm. adapt it a little bit. I definitely think that's true. Yeah. Uh, and I think it gave a curriculum to science where we didn't have a curriculum, at least out in Caldwell. Like we, previously, yeah. we didn't really have a curriculum for science. It was sort of integrated into journeys and new mm-hmm. engaged New York and whatever else they were doing, but it wasn't really like, Oh, this is science. And so now we have, Oh, well this is science. And now I really want to teach teachers how to re-engage it back into their right. core content. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have just given some fantastic um, skills that like, I think elementary teachers have to do. I come from a secondary world, so I'm just thinking, like, I never had to do some of that stuff, you know, because I didn't teach everything. So what do you think secondary teachers can learn from elementary teachers? Like, are there certain things that you think... I haven't spent a lot of time in secondary classrooms, yeah. so I don't think that I really am the best person to, to judge this. From my own uh-huh. experience in high school or other places, I think the engagement piece is I think elementary school teachers work really hard on the buy-in, like getting everyone bought into whatever we're doing, right. and it increases the learning. And I think when the buy-in expectation is, well, your grade is going to suffer or you might not pass my class... There's probably less buy-in, um, and so I think that maybe kids aren't as engaged. But I don't know that to be fact. Okay. So. <laughs> so what is it that? How do elementary teachers get the buy-in? Um, that curiosity piece mm-hmm. is like any time I can possibly build off of questions that kids have asked, or things that they have shown interest in, or things that they want to learn. If I can, in any way, even if it's just showing a five-minute, like Mystery Science has those little like five-minute mini lessons. If I can show a five-minute mini lesson about toads because one of my kids in my class came in and told me they saw a toad on the weekend and it was whatever and they were so excited about it that increases their buy-in period towards science and the things that i teach it's like oh yeah mrs prop can connect science to exactly what i saw this weekend and look how cool that is um so i think using their ideas really helps a lot but we have a lot more time with our like you know 
I have seven hours a day with my right. kids. And so if I take five minutes out of my seven hours to show a thing about toads because it increases their understanding, I'm not really eating up a large fraction of my day. But if I take five minutes out of a 50-minute block, then yeah. I'm eating up a chunk of the day. Well, I think that's a great comment, though, that, like, whatever level you teach, you can, like, curiosity is a thing for humans. Yeah. It should be at least, right? Isn't yeah. that why we do science? Yes. <laughs> you, what, if you teach middle or high or, or you know, post-secondary, like, you can use people's curiosity to engage them. Mm-hmm. So that's, I like that. Do you have any other tips uh, for getting kids engaged in science? Another thing on the buy-in piece is observation charts are super cool. So if you can come up with the weirdest, funniest, strangest pictures of whatever you're about to teach. So like the weirdest, funniest, strangest pictures of landforms. So like the hoodoo things and, okay. you know, those like weird, funny things. And put them up around your room and ask kids to take a few minutes with some sticky notes and write down something they observe or notice or wonder about those things that are hanging around your room, like that will increase their buy-in in the unit too. It's like, okay, I'm finally going to teach you what a hoodoo is because everybody was like, that's strange. Um, and so that increases their buy-in too. It's like, I, yeah, I mean, we just did Native American observation charts in my classroom and my kids were so interested in the tools, like the tools one. I had so many sticky notes on there. Like, I wonder what this is for. I wonder what that is. Um, and I literally just created a little piece of construction paper with color photos of tools on it. And it, like, got their attention. That was enough, huh? That was enough. <laughs> well, if you could go back to your first year of teaching and give yourself some advice, you know, now, um, seven years in, what, what, would you, what would you tell yourself? Uh, use your teammates. Okay. Like, you cannot do this profession by yourself. I don't care who you are. This is a hard profession and we need each other. Like we need to share ideas and we shouldn't be keeping the things that are working to ourselves. Like we should be blasting it so as many kids can benefit as possible. Um, and so definitely the like use your teammates portion would be huge advice for me. Um, I went to that charter school, which did not have a set curriculum and it had a set of standards that was written out like, well, by this point in the year, kids should know all of these standards. And by this point in the year, kids should know all of these standards. But there was no math curriculum. There was no reading curriculum. There was no science curriculum, no writing curriculum. Uh, and at first, new teacher me was like, I've got this. And pretty quickly, I was running to my teammates going, I don't have this. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make it inquiry-based. I don't know how to, well, how am I supposed to make kids curious about math? Like, <laughs> uh, and so right. that was, yeah, I mean, because that was like the big question was like, well, how are you making kids curious? It was like, I'd submit my lesson plans and it's like, well, what's the curiosity component for math this week? And it's like, I don't know. I just want them to know how to add three digit numbers. That's the second grade standard. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so that was really good. Like having teammates where they were like, okay, well, this is how we engage our kids or this is what the curiosity piece is. And as I've gone along, like my teammates have been a saving grace all the way through, like moving to a new district where I didn't understand. Then I, then I then had a curriculum for everything and didn't understand how to use the curriculum. <laughs> um, and so that I had some really great teammates that like I had an instructional coach that actually came in and watched my class so I could go observe one of my teammates teaching. Um, and so did some of those things. Um, and I think that, that, yeah, but use your teammates instead of struggling through the first while would have been, 
would have been my number one piece of advice. Okay. That's good. Well, you and I are both on the board for ISTA, Idaho Science Teaching Association. Um, what are your thoughts about that, and where do you feel like... I don't know, science education should get to or move to or, you know, yeah. <laughs> where, where do we need to head? So I think that what I have bumped into is like my first answer to this is like, well, I want science accessible for all kids. Mm-hmm. And somebody recently asked me, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and it really made me think, like, what do I actually mean when I say that I, I joined ISTA because I want science accessible for all kids? Um And what I really mean by that is that I want opportunities to engage in inquiry. I want opportunities to use their curiosity for all kids, starting in kindergarten. I want kids to be curious. I want them to be engaged. I want them to ask questions, a million questions, even if all their questions don't get answered. Uh, Like, I want them asking those questions. And so I think that we as teachers have to facilitate that or at least provide an opportunity for it. Right. Even if I, I am not the end-all, know-all, anything about science, period. Like, before I teach something in a grade level, like, I have to do my own research, and I have to learn it myself so that I can go out and teach it. Um, I did not take a bunch of science cal- courses in college. My actual lowest grade in college was in a biology class. <laughs> uh, and so, like, I certainly am not an expert. And so I just think that building that confidence for staff members that they can do this, they can teach science, they can provide these opportunities for kids. Um, I think making it accessible to me doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is taking the standards book and teaching every single standard, but that they are working hard to make sure kids engage in inquiry and curiosity and with science, with science vocabulary, with science content. Um, That's a great answer. Thanks. I like that. Well, um, just to wrap up here, uh, a lot of times we like to do some kind of a funny story or experience um, that happens when you teach. And I know this isn't always easy to think of, Yeah. Um, but what what do you got for us? Well, I had a kid in second grade tell me once that he wanted to grow up to be a teacher so he could drink Red Bull, too. Um, <laughs> so I, that was a pretty funny moment. Like, I went home and told my family. I was like, oh, yep, I must be drinking too much Red Bull because... <laughs> little boy in my class is like, I am going to be a teacher so I can drink Red Bull. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I had a student in elementary a couple weeks ago tell me they thought I looked like a pilot. And I went home and told my family, like, why why did they think I looked like a pilot? And my my wife's like, well, you were wearing this sweater that kind of has, like, something on your shoulders, kind of like a pilot. And I'm like, oh. So it's kind of funny what what kids think. Think, the you know, connections they the make. connections they yeah. make that you never even think about. So. Yeah, my guess is the only first people that he had seen drinking Red Bull were at school. <laughs> so <laughs> you're like, I gotta drink this Red Bull to get through the week with you guys, yes, right? Yeah, so. all the caffeine. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Yeah. Anything else that we didn't cover that you wanna? I don't think say? so. I don't think so. Well, this has been awesome, Betty. I mean, you I have this complete page of things that I wrote down from you, and I love the strategies of engagement 
and curiosity and kind of that philosophy you've talked about. And so just appreciate it so much, the time you've uh, taken to share this with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I was really nervous to come here. Um, I showed my husband the questions and he was like, they're all about you. Like you can answer those <laughs> You can answer those questions. And I was like, okay. Um, so I'm really glad that I came and did it and had the opportunity to share and speak with you. So thank you.